Um, I just reached into my pockets and um, Andrew, our sound tech, gave me hand warmers and uh, it's, it's about 200 degrees inside my pocket, so I'm going to take those out. Uh, hey, uh, I'm going to start off with a, a passage this morning because we're wrapping up our Love Stinks series and I want to read this uh, from 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 10 and uh, read along with me. It's in your notes, it's on the screen, of course it's in your Bibles. Uh, My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. This is to believers on how they should behave as believers. We should love each other because love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. At this point, we should pause and recognize that we must be terribly mislabeling love because this says that anyone who loves is born of God. Well, you know that there are terrible people who do terrible things who claim to love people. So either this is wrong or we're wrong about what the nature of love is. The person who refuses to love In other words, a person who refuses to really love the way love is really meant to be done doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. So this is the definition of love. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage done to our relationship with God. So this passage is all about how we should be loving, but we should also know what love really is because in order to really love, you have to be in relationship with God because it says that's the litmus to decide whether we really know what love is or whether we really know what God is. If you don't love as described by Scripture, then you don't know God at all. Of all the things you and I have used throughout Christianity to measure whether or not we're Christians, we rarely say, well, how are you at loving? We talk about how often you read your Bible, how often you pray, what kind of small groups you attend, what kind of church you go to, what you believe about this, what you believe, the stand you take on this, whether you're involved in, in voting, whether you do this and whether you do that. We have a bunch of criteria that are completely arbitrary and made up because none of them line up against that litmus. That's exactly how we know whether we're truly followers of Christ or not. So I don't know about you guys, this is a game we used to play with, uh, uh, Lisa and I would play with our boys. We had uh, three sons, and uh, we would play the I love you more game. Does anybody play the I love you more game? Um, You know, uh, Carson would say, I love you, and I'd say, I love you more. And then he'd say, I love you to the moon. And I'd say, oh, I love you to the moon and back. And then he'd say, I love you to the moon a thousand times. I'd be like, I love you all the way outside of our galaxy. And then five times around the galaxy, inside the sun, then back to the moon. And we would try to make it as absurd as possible, the I love you more, right? Until one of us would just give up and go, all right, I got it. We love each other. Let's move on with our day. With God, can you imagine playing the I love you more game? Where you say to God, I love you. And he says, I love you more. And he says, well, I actually am love. 
Love doesn't exist outside of me. Love begins and ends with me. I love you so much that I sent my only son into the world to live as one of you, to be tortured and murdered for a crime he didn't commit, to take on the sins of the world, to be humiliated on a cross, to go into the grave and grab the keys to hell during the three days in the grave, come back, be resurrected to life so that you could spend eternity with me. That's how much I love you. And then you say, I don't want to play the game anymore because you don't play fair. All that to really say that, honestly, it's hard to love God. It's hard to love someone when there doesn't seem to be an agreement on the terms. Because if any of us are honest, we have to say that it feels bad to love someone as poorly as we love them when they love us as well as they love us. And honestly, that affects the way we're in relationship. If, if you were in a marriage and your love was very selfish and very self-centered and abusive and, and, and it was hot and cold, sometimes you were loving and then sometimes you were cold and distant and, and wouldn't talk to them for weeks on end and sometimes you would see them and sometimes you wouldn't because something more important came up, there would be a level of guilt that you would carry that your love is so broken compared to this unselfish, caring, sacrificial, compassionate, kind, tender, forgiving love that you get from your spouse. That would strain a relationship because you would live in this sort of um, shadow of shame. And I want to tell you, it stinks loving God. It's hard to love God, and, and there's a million reasons why it's hard to love God. It's, honestly, I, I, if I could selfishly ask for God to be more like me, be more physical, be more present physically, you see, I want God to change His nature because it would make loving Him easier. I want God to not be eternal. I want him to have a beginning and an end like me because then I know that, that, that there's some sense of co-equality. But it's not like that at all. God has capabilities and his nature is completely different than my nature. And so loving him is not always easy. And I know that sounds kind of heretical that it's the whole nature of what we should be doing is loving Him. That's our, that's our whole vibe as Christians is to love God. But I want to take you through three reasons why you should recognize that it's really, really difficult to love God. So if you don't have your notes out, grab them and let's go through this conversation together. It's easy to feel like I'm failing in my love for God considering that number one, God's love is unconditional and mine isn't. God's love is unconditional and mine isn't. So we talked about this a little last week. If you weren't here, make sure you, you catch up. You can just go to mysummit.church and watch the messages online or do it on the app. Because I talked about how love isn't uh, transactional. And you know what I mean by transactional? Like you go into Taco Bell and you lay down money and they give you something that resembles Mexican food, right? That's the, that's the transaction that happens. It's a give and a take. It's not reciprocal, which means that there's 
a benefit to both parties, that there's a equal or some close to an equal benefit to both parties. Love is not reciprocal and it's not transactional. In other words, there's no conditions on it. This person doesn't have to behave a certain way or be a certain color or be a certain size or be of a certain sexual orientation or be of a certain name or a, a certain ethnicity. They don't have to do anything to qualify for our love. That's the way love is supposed to work as described by God, as described by the Bible. There aren't any conditions, but the reality is that that's love, that's not us. It's easier to say that love isn't conditional and love isn't transactional and love isn't reciprocal, but that's not the reality that we live in because we have limitations. We have lines in the sand. I mean, are we honestly going to keep loving someone that hates us? Are we going to honestly love somebody that abuses us? Are we going to honestly love somebody that refuses our love and goes out of their way to be hurtful, to attack us, to treat us with disdain and disrespect? Is it reasonable to love people we don't even know who seem a million miles away from our values, our morals, our beliefs? We have lines in which we go, it's just, it's a bridge too far. We're not, I'm, I shouldn't be expected to love this person as much as they've done to me, as much as they've hurt me, as abusive as they've been to me. All of the things, you can't expect me to do that. And honestly, a reasonable-minded person would go, I get it. I do, I get it. I get it that there's limitations. The reality is the rules we apply, the conditions we give for others to get our love are the same ones we apply to God. We put conditions on God. He puts no conditions on us. And we put conditions. The absolute audacity and arrogancy, arrogance that we put condition. God, you don't answer my prayers, or at least you don't answer them in time, or you don't answer them the way I want. You don't bless the things I want to do, even though I didn't take the time to actually pray about whether I should do it or not. You say this thing's wrong, and I don't think that thing is wrong, and you say this thing's right, and I don't believe that that's right. I don't believe I should have to love, and, and, and I don't think I should have to forgive, and I don't think, I don't like what you say here, and I don't like what you do there. And the truth is, our love for him runs hot and cold according to whether he's behaving the way that we want him to behave to be a good God to us. Just like our love runs hot and cold with others when they do act, believe, live the way we want them to. Listen to Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God is so rich in his mercy that he loved us so much, even though we were spiritually dead and doomed by our sins. He gave us back our lives again when he raised Christ from the dead. Only by his undeserved favor have we ever been saved. God says, while you were at your most rebellious, when you didn't deserve it at all, I put no conditions on the act of love of giving my son. I restored life back to you, knowing good and well that some of you would refuse that, would rebel against it, would hate me for doing it. I've heard people actually say, I, Jesus died for me, I never asked him to do that. This is the type of mentality that says, 
I was in a car burning alive and you pulled me out and rescued me. I don't need to thank you. I never asked you to do that. God loves us without condition. It'd be interesting to see if we actually tried to love God during the most difficult season of our lives like we love Him during the most blessed season of our lives. Does He get our adoration, our worship, our, our respect, our love? Does He get the expression of how deeply we love Him? Does He hear that from us when we are suffering as when we're living in favor and blessing? Because if not, it would seem as if we're withholding from God until He falls in line and behaves the way He's supposed to. Secondly is this, it's easy to feel like I'm failing in my love for God, considering that number two, God's love is constant, but mine isn't. God's love is constant, but mine isn't. So the ACLU helped expose what critics have believed for some time now, that the National Security Administration, the NSA, which is a component of the Defense Department, has been and actually amazingly continues to engage in unconstitutional surveillance of U.S. citizens, including our telephone calls and our emails. In the effort, of course, to protect us from terrorism, they found loopholes that allow them to continue to listen to your phone calls and read your emails without you knowing about it. Guests all around the country have begun to discover that in their Airbnbs and Verbos and other vacation rentals that they found hidden cameras, made videos of that, reported it to Airbnb in their bathrooms and in their bedrooms. Now, that feels very invasive, so does the NSA thing, but weirdly, every single one of us in here, I'm going to assume almost every single one of us in here, is carrying a surveillance device that also happens to make phone calls and send texts. And here's the crazier part about that. You got your phone at a massive discount. Every phone manufacturer, every company loses money on the phone itself. An iPhone's about $1,000. They lose money on that phone, what it costs them to make that phone. The value of that phone, they lose money, and here's why. Because them, along with your carrier, Verizon or AT&T or whoever you have, they have you sign a user agreement in which you give them permission to track you, to track when you make phone calls, where you go by your geolocator, um, that the microphone works even when the phone is not being used to make calls and it's picking up conversations and using algorithms to pick up words in which it can send you targeted advertising. It tracks what kind of restaurants you like to eat at. It finds where you go, what you say while you're there. Also, they can collect data. Also, that they can listen. All of that from the NSA to your phone carrier to the phone maker to all the things People value being able to judge you. They find out your income category. They find out your likes and your dislikes. And they want to know whether you are a valuable customer or not. Now, we say we value our privacy. Because 
Preferably, we wouldn't like what we do in the bathroom or in our bedroom to be on some website called NaughtyAirbnb.com or whatever they do with those videos, right? We would prefer that the NSA, not that we hopefully have anything to hide, would mind their own business and go after terrorists instead of hearing me talk about how the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> But the reality is, what you say and what you do is important to judge you. Your value increases and de decreases according to what they know about you. Um, you're more valuable if you're male, if you're white, if you're 40 to 50, if you have a certain income, because they know that you might have more liquid money to spend, and you also might be very valuable if you're any teenager between the ages of 16 and 22 or 23 or 24 because you are most likely to spend money on things that are trendy and will go away in a couple years and you'll have to replenish all of that. The point is, all of that has value. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies buy that information from Verizon, AT&T, Apple, Samsung. They harvest that because they want to find your value. And before we get too self-righteous and judge all of these people for trying to gain more information about us, which one of us wouldn't want to do the same thing? If you could know everything there is to know about the prospect who's getting ready to babysit your child, wouldn't you want to know everything you could about them? Whether they're trustworthy or not, or the boss that you're getting ready to accept an offer from, or the employee that you're getting ready to hire, or the spouse that you're getting, or the, the, the fiance that you're getting ready to marry, wouldn't you want to know if there's some information that's hidden so that you can decide whether you want to move forward into this big venture with them? Of course, all of us would want to do it. And the reality is we all try to gain that information so that we can judge them of the worthiness of our trust, of the worthiness of their, our money, of the worthiness of our love. It's why we treat one person differently than the other. It's why one person gets our love and the other person doesn't. It's why that if you found out something about someone that you currently love and that information devastated that reputation in your life, in your mind, in your heart, about them, your love would change for them. Which means our love is not constant. It's earned and it's fluid and it's disqualified at times. But Psalm 118, 1 says this about God, give thanks to the Lord. Thank God because He's good. His faithful love continues forever. God's love is called faithful. It, faithfulness is when you're there all the time. It's predictably present. It's that God's love never changes. He says, thank God. He's the good one. His love never changes for us. And then listen to what 1 Corinthians says. And this is that love chapter we love to use at weddings, but has nothing to do with romance. This is the constancy. This is the consistency this is, the, this is the faithfulness of what love looks like. Love is patient. 
when its patience is tested. Love is kind when it could be mean. Love isn't jealous. Love doesn't sing its own praises. It's not prideful. It's not arrogant. Love isn't rude. It doesn't think about itself. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep track of wrongs. It's not happy when injustice is done, but it's happy with the truth. Love never stops being patient. It never stops believing. It never stops hoping. It never gives up. Love love never comes to an end. Do you see what this passage is saying is love is, love is, love is. This is always what love is. We don't get to define love differently. We don't get to change the terms of love. We don't get to say, I love you, but... You're testing my patience. I love you, but I, you deserve me being rude to you because you were rude to me. I love you, but love is constant. Love is always what love is. We aren't, but love is. God loves us constantly in spite of the fact that we disearn his love, that we disqualify ourselves from his love, that we do things that would make us unloving to anyone. Here's the craziness God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere at the same time. God sees you, your public self and your hidden self. He sees you all the time. He knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you've ever said, that you've mumbled under your breath. He's seen everything that you've ever done. He sees how you do your taxes, and he still loves you. God is the greatest surveiller. He has all the information, and yet with all he knows, his love is constant. It does not change ever. He could learn something horribly new about you today, and his love would not change. Third and finally is this. It's easy to feel like I'm falling or failing in my love for God, considering that God's love is absolute and mine isn't. So the word absolute is defined a couple different ways, and they're both applicable to what we're talking about today. So absolute means that it's not qualified or diminished in any way. It's total, 100%. It also means to exist independently and not in relationship to other things. So, we give value to things, but those values that we give things are relative. So, I have a, a 2017 or 18, I think it's a 2018, Toyota Tacoma. Um, and I bought it a few years ago, pre-pandemic. And I searched and searched and searched and searched and searched. And uh, Caleb, my oldest, searched and searched and we found this one that had a pretty good price. It was a pretty exceptional price, and, and I, I, I bought it, but it wasn't so fantastic that I had instant equity on it, and uh, I buy this truck, and then the pandemic hits, and there's about four cars that soared in value. Two of them are Teslas, and two are a Toyota Tundra and a Toyota Tacoma, and I can sell my truck for more than I bought it for. A few years ago. That's astronomical because cars don't work that way. They're not an investment. They depreciate terribly, 
cars are horrible, horrible places to put your money, but unfortunately they're necessary, right? The truck's value actually didn't change at all. The truck, I didn't add anything to it. I didn't do anything to it. It's relative to the demand, and it's just at one time it wasn't worth that much, and now it's worth more than it's ever been worth before. That's called relative value, right? A, a baseball card's only worth something if someone's willing to pay that. That's relative. Love, on the other hand, is absolute. It cannot be diminished. It can't be changed. It has no relativity whatsoever. It, it, it's, its nature never changes from what it is. Listen to 1 John 4.8. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God. This is a passage I read earlier, but this is in the Amplified Version. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God. In other words, does not and never did know him. For God is love, which means he's the originator of love, and it is an enduring attribute of his nature. It's descriptive of the nature of who God is. Oh, that was, the end of, that was the end of that passage, so we can just pause dramatically there, and I can move on. So here's what that means, that because love is God and God is love, God's nature does not change. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our relationship and our recognition and our, our knowledge of God has been evolutionary. If you look in the Old Testament, you see this strained, animus, battling relationship with God. It's this constant rebellion and, and constant need to, to try to climb up and be, restore ourselves to righteousness and God thwarting that effort, trying to demonstrate how that's not possible. And then we see this New Testament God, which seems more loving. You see, God's love was consistent all along. It's our relationship to God's love that changed. Our perception of who God was changed. The very nature of God is love. It's absolute. It consumes everything about Him. It is the very nature of everything He thinks says and does. So when you read the Bible and you say, well, that's not very loving, you don't know what love is. I don't know what love is outside of God. He is the originator of love. It is his nature. It's as if somebody tells me, the inventor of something, what the invention is and what it can do and what it can't do. That's not their place to do that. I invented it. I know what its purpose and place is. You and I, even if we had the best definition of love in our lives, would still not have an absolute, whole, complete expression or understanding of what love is. So even if we do, and here's the, here's the thing I want you to get sort of excited about, and, and Gavin, you can come back up. Here's the thing I want you to get a little bit excited about is the burden on you is not to even love as God loves because it feels like an impossible task. 
but rather learn how God loves and love the absolute best, fullest, most whole expression of that love possible. I was a youth pastor for many years, like almost 18 years. So I worked with middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college-age students. And I love, I still to this day love middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college-age students. I think it's the most magical time in somebody's life. It's messy, it's raw, they're awkward, they're weird, they're funny, they smell. It's just a, and that's just the girls. That, that is... <laughs> And I would correct parents frequently when they would say, you know, um, she's in love. She thinks she's in love. And I told her, that's not love. You don't even know what love is. And I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, whoa, don't do that. That's, the, that's all they know. Like, that's their highest expression. That's, that's the capacity they have for love at this moment. At 13 years old, what it. What do you want to, it's puppy love. I don't even know what that is. That's not a biblical term, puppy love. And yea, verily, love each other with puppy love and full-grown dog love. And it's none of that. It's, it's 13 years old or 15 years old or 17 years old. Our understanding of what love is, our expression of what love is, our command of what love, it changes. It should. It should grow, right? So yes, of course they're in love at 13 years. It's the highest form of emotion and connection and commitment that they can feel at that stage. No, of course they haven't gone through all of the life experiences that you have and they haven't learned everything that you have, but you haven't either. You're 35 or 40. Somebody who's been, Bill and Joy Laws just celebrated their 66th wedding anniversary, right? They look at us and go, you don't know what love is, you bunch of children. Lisa and I have been married 30 years. I go, I thought that was a big deal. They doubled that and then added some just to show off. Let me close with this passage. It's the passage we opened up at the beginning of our series. Teacher, which command in the law is the most important? And Jesus answered this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said, this is the first and most important command. And the second command is like the first. It's just as important as the first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here's what Jesus says. Grow in your love. Love better today than you did yesterday because you should be a more whole, more mature more growing person today. You should have greater understanding of the love of God because you've spent more time in God's presence, because you've made a greater effort. How do you build a muscle, but if not to exercise that muscle? So do you love God today as completely as you should? No. Will you ever love God the way he loves you? No, you're not God. You don't even have the capacity to do that, but you can know his love more and you can love him better tomorrow than you did today. And you can love yourself more today than you did yesterday so that you can love others better than you did yesterday. You see, love has to keep growing and growing and growing. We have to practice it. 
We have to recognize when we're doing it wrong. We have to recognize when we're, when we're manipulating it and when we're molesting it to make it fit us. And then we slap the name love on it so that we can justify and rationalize what we do. There's people who abuse in the name of love. There's people who hate in the name of love. There's people who manipulate in the name of love. There's people who lie in the name of love. There's a lot of evil we do in the name of love. Imagine if we put that amount of effort and creativity into adopting and adapting ourselves to how God loves. And think, I don't know that I'll ever master this, but I want to get better at it. I want to look at 1 Corinthians and not think it's some thing that needs to be read only at weddings, but it is a mantra for my life, for how I love me, for how I love others, for how even I love God. I'm going to stop putting limitations and lines in the sand, and I'm going to stop making it reciprocal and transactional. I want it to be whole. I want it to be constant, that my love doesn't change according to my mood, and it doesn't change according to circumstances, and it doesn't change according to your behavior towards me. But my love is always there. It's always real. It's always tangible. It's always measurable. That's what I want my love to be for God and my love to be for you. Because I want to be marked as a follower of Christ. If I get through life and I'm successful at anything, I want to be marked as a genuine follower of Christ. And I'm going to tell you this, listen, at your funeral, at your memorial, the thing they will note about you is your capacity to love. They will either describe you as who Jesus really created you to be, as someone who loved everyone, or some diminished, devalued version of that. Because it was more important for us to hold on to a judgment and hold on to a criterion, hold on to a measurement that we could use to value people or devalue people. The more I know about you is either going to earn you love or it's going to take away love. What a terrible, terrible abuse of what love is meant to be. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want you just to have a second to decide what you want to do with all this. If you, like me, understand how difficult it really is to love, I mean, to love each other, to love ourselves, to love God, it really does stink. It's the reason that we're commanded to love. There's few other things that we have to be commanded to do, but the things we are commanded to do, we're commanded because they don't come naturally to us, because we're not good at it by ourselves. It's calling on the very nature of God to be lived in us and through us. And it means us stepping out of the way and giving up what we think we're entitled to and what we think we have a right to and I have the right not to forgive and I have the right not to be kind and I have the right to do this and the right to do that. But as a follower of Christ, you surrender all of that. You abandon all of your rights to be withholding and to be unloving because the Bible clearly says that it's the true nature, it's the litmus test of what it means to be a true follower of Christ, to know God. God is love. 
And if we don't know love, then we don't know God. So what is it that you'll do today? If you'll say, I want to redesign, to dismantle and rebuild my understanding of what love is. I've just picked up along the way what I've been told and, I, and, and I've, I've, I've built my own version and I've got my own standards and my own criteria for it, but I want to abandon that all today right here and I, I want to love my very best. Even if it's like a 13-year-old who thinks they're in love, I, I, I want right now to give 100% of my love with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with everything I am, I want to love well. I want to love constantly. I want to love unconditionally. And you're committed to start practicing what you're saying you want. If that's you, would you just throw a hand up? Yeah, lots and lots, lots of us. God, we desperately need your nature in us to do this well, to do it at all. Love begins with you and it ends with you. It's incomplete. It's perverted without you. There's all kinds of names and descriptions we can give to the things that we call love, but they're not love unless they are your nature being expressed. And we have an absolute definition of what it looks like right there in your word, written centuries ago so that we could know with absolute certainty exactly what love is and who love is. And so that's what we chase after. More of you, more of your love, more knowledge of who you are. My final prayer for us is this, that every single one of us grows in our passion and desire to be known as a follower of Christ, not by where we stand politically and not where we stand socially and not where we stand on this issue and not how often we read our Bible and how often we go to church and what small groups we belong to, but how well we love. It's what matters most to you and it should matter most to us. And that's my prayer for us, receiving it and thanking you now in advance as if it's already happened. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.